Hi everybody, Mike Wardrock from Encounter Church here, and thanks so much for tuning into our podcast. Our prayer is that through this podcast, you could have an encounter with Jesus that will change your life. And now get ready for an inspiring message from our teaching team. Expectation versus reality. I wonder whether you have ever been scrolling through social media and have come across something like this. <laughs> or perhaps the next one. <laughs> I love that one on the left, oh my goodness. <laughs> or perhaps you've been scrolling through Instagram and you've found yourself making one of these. Um, <laughs> So we have this notion of expectation versus reality in our culture. Another way of talking about expectation is to use the word hope. We go through life with these hopes, with these expectations. I hope things get better. I hope it all works out. I hope this year is better than the last one. Sounds a bit familiar. Or if you're like me, gee, I hope I make it there on time. So our culture loves to give us a vision of this hope, whether that's in the media or social media or advertisements. You know, there is a million things bombarding us saying, if we just buy that product or go on that holiday or find that special someone, get into the right relationship, then everything's gonna be okay. When you think about it, like hope is the thing that keeps us going. Hope is the thing that makes me think, oh yeah, it's kind of worth getting out of bed in the morning. When you think about it, hope is pretty powerful. So my question is, how do we know hope is worth having? In an era of disillusionment, it doesn't take long to look at the state of the world and start asking the question, why hope, where hope, how? You know, Russia invades Ukraine, or we're dealing with COVID and the fallout of that for the third year in a a row, not to mention all the cracks and conflicts underneath the surface that that's brought up in our society. And so, as we look at these visions of hope, how do we know we can trust them? How do we know that we're heading towards an oasis and not just a mirage? And when we've been walking through the desert for what feels like days, weeks, months, even years on end with the same old status quo, or worse, maybe you feel like the status quo has been shattered and left behind. What is hope? Now, we are not the first people in history to face crisis. And so this question of hope is not just a question for today. Today I am preaching from a passage in Luke 6, where Jesus encounters two different groups of people who are looking for hope. The first group who are looking for hope are the Pharisees, and they are hoping for the redemption of Israel. So Israel and Palestine has been occupied by the Romans, and they have this hope that Israel, God's chosen people, will be liberated and will again be set free. And the second person looking for hope is this man with a withered hand. He had a physical disability, which would have left him unable to work without the same provisions that they have in our society, without the same medical advancements. And so by human standards, there's a pretty good chance that he had given up all hope. And so how does Jesus meet and encounter these two groups? Well, one thing I want you to remember, and this might be for someone, is an encounter with Jesus never leaves you unchanged. He meets us right where we are, but he doesn't leave us there. And so we jump right into the midst and the tensions of and the drama of first century Palestine. So you're like jumping straight into this passage is a bit like when you're watching a movie and like it's 
you're, you're at the like really intense, exciting bit, and then someone stops and like interrupts you mid-scene. They're like, "What's going on?" And you're like, "Oh." And you have to rewind it, and you have to explain everything. And you're like, "Mom, that was the best bit." Like, and so, in this particular passage, we sort of jump in mid-scene where. The Pharisees, they are one group who believe that they would see this Israel, see Israel's liberation, which they hoped for, and God's return through perfect law-keeping. And they've just had this big showdown with Jesus regarding what he can and can't do on the Sabbath, which is Israel's holy day. And Jesus finishes this whole thing with the trump card, right? He's like, the Son of Man, that's him, is Lord of the Sabbath. Now God gave the Sabbath. So the Pharisees, quite rightly, are kind of like, Jesus, who do you think you are? And so this next encounter, the Pharisees are feeling a little bit miffed. They're a bit gypped. They're not too happy with him. And as they come across Jesus, they are looking for a reason to accuse him. So they watched him closely to see if he would heal on the Sabbath, which wasn't allowed and straight onto this scene with all these tensions and all these dynamics walks Jesus. And he's not even faced. He meets this man who's in the temple with the withered hand and he says to him, he doesn't say, hey, hey buddy, just come over here. Let's have a quick little one-on-one. I just want to have a private conversation with you. I don't want to you know, cause any fuss over here. No, he's like, get up and stand in front of everybody. And then he's like, he, he, looks, he looks them in the eye, so not only that, but he goes and he scans the room and he looks at these people, knowing what they're thinking, and he's like, I ask you, which is lawful on the Sabbath? To do good or to do evil? To save life or to destroy it? He is not even phased. He speaks with authority. And the Pharisees in that time would have been the religious powers that be. So most people would have quite legitimately been intimidated of them, but not Jesus. His boldness is shocking and he's not afraid to ruffle a few feathers. So he says to the man in front of them all, stretch out your hand. And the man does, and in doing so, he is healed. So you see, in this encounter, Jesus challenges the expectations of all the different people involved, and he brings in his new reality. See, we see this incredible pattern in Jesus' ministry. He not only claims authority, he not only talks with authority, but he demonstrates it time and again with signs and wonders and miracles and healings. He walks on water, he feeds the 5,000, he heals blind men and lepers, he raises people from the dead. It sounds kind of out of this world, right? Because it's meant to be. Jesus' claim that the kingdom of God is near is more than just some like vague religious notion rallying people to a church service on Sunday or synagogue or whatever they did on Sundays back then. He is saying a new era is dawning, a new reality with a radical claim for all of life. And that claim is Jesus is king. You might wonder, you know, where exactly in the passage it says that. It's because he shows it before he tells it. So we catch a glimpse here of Jesus' radical kingdom and the radical hope that it brings. So what kind of hope is this? You might be wondering, how does this relate to me? Well, the first point about the Jesus-y kind of hope is it is inside out. 
See, we see in this passage the contrast between the response of this man and the response of the Pharisees. Jesus just did this incredible miracle, restoring this, me- this man's hand and his dignity. But it says the Pharisees and the teachers of the law were furious and began to discuss with one another what they might do to Jesus. So no, they didn't discuss, you see what I'm seeing? Did that, did that really happen? No, they didn't discuss, man, that was incredible. Maybe this man is something special. And they didn't even take the time to celebrate the restoration of this man's life. No, what did they want to do? They looked at Jesus and they're like, kill him. So we see the biggest question in this is actually not about the miracle. It's not about the Sabbath. It's actually about Jesus' authority. Because authority is offensive. If Jesus is king, categorically, I am not. And the Pharisees didn't like this. So feeling threatened, they began to plot. And in our culture, where we love tolerance and everyone having their own truth, I just wonder how that might land today. In contrast, the man who we can assume had no reason, no prior evidence of Jesus' power to heal him, submits to his authority. He says, Jesus says, stretch out your hand. And the man didn't say, oh, I tried that last week. Oh, no, the doctor said there's no treatment for that. Or, nah, I'm really comfortable with the way things are, actually. Mm. No, to him, Jesus is king was good news. And the beginning of a new life for him. So we'll see this hope that we receive, it starts with a heart posture. And our response starts from the inside out. Second point, Jesus' kingdom of hope is upside down. So, in Jesus' kingdom, it is good news for the poor. It is good news for the marginalized, good news for the downtrodden, good news for the man with the withered hand. Throughout his ministry, Jesus goes around saying crazy things, like, blessed are the meek, and the first will be last, and the last will be first, and those who humble themselves will be exalted, but those who exalt themselves will be humbled. But he's not only saying this, he's also living it through his life and in his death. See, Jesus and the gospel is bad news for the powers that be. Bad news for the oppressors, for those who elevate themselves and like to marginalize and take advantage of others. Bad news for those who just want to live for their own selfish gain. But it is good news for the sinner, the poor, the marginalized, the humble. And so in this story, we see that with Jesus, all who are willing to approach can be reconciled around him as they gather around his table of grace. This isn't like our culture where we like to take the people who are oppressed and then they kind of jump up the top and become the new oppressors who take advantage of the other people. That's just a pattern in humanity and society. No, this is a place where all gather around the table and all are welcomed in around Jesus. Now, wouldn't that be good news for today? Third point, the hope that Jesus brings is both now and not yet. Why are Christians so crazy? Have you guys ever wondered this? Have you ever asked this? Have you ever been asked this? (laughs) I actually wish this question was asked more. Um, 
Because, friends, we are not meant to fit in. We are meant to be a little bit crazy. (laughs) We're meant to look crazy as those who belong to and are living for another kind of world. It's not to say that what we do here doesn't matter. Rather, it actually starts to matter more as our lives are swept up in God's big story, smaller pieces of his bigger picture and his plan to renew and redeem and restore this world and all of creation. So what Jesus did was crazy. We usually gloss over it because like, we're in church and it's all religious and I'm like, he's Jesus and we just expect him to do crazy things, right? No. The sense of God's future, break, future kingdom breaking in through the inside-out miracle of someone coming to faith or the upside-down, selfless, and counterintuitive act of caring for the poor, or through signs and wonders and miracles, it wasn't meant to stop with Jesus. So, growing up, I grew up in quite a Christian context, and I used to think, I'd look around and I'd be like, wow, you don't believe in Jesus? Like, those people don't believe in Jesus? Oh my goodness, I can't believe that. Like, that's crazy. Like, everyone believes in Jesus, right? (laughs) Then I grew up a little bit um, (laughs) and had some encounters and some conversations with people. And more recently, my response in this scenario has been, I really believe in Jesus. In this world, that is crazy. I've had conversations with people where I'm talking about my faith and it's just natural for me to bring God into it because I'm just like that. And so um, I'll be like, oh yeah, yeah, I I just quit my job to spend three years studying a ministry degree with really no idea how that's going to work out financially Um, just because some sky fairy told me to, in your opinion and point of view. Or in our culture of unlimited choice where truth is relative, holding to my best possible understanding of what the Bible's view is on controversial topics like sex before marriage or sexuality in a way that is gracious and not unkind, but is faithful to gospel truth, even if it might lose me some friends. That, I'll tell you, feels properly crazy. Or believing in miracles, the spiritual realm, a dead guy raised to life, Seen through the world's eyes, that is properly mental. I could choose a path that's more convenient, more politically correct, more likely to make me cool or attractive or impressive in the world's eyes and, or win me the approval of others. And I won't say I haven't been tempted to. But every time I reach the end of myself, I'm reminded it's not meant to make sense to this world. My favorite verse, or one of them, is in John chapter 6, verse 68, I think it is, where Jesus has just said some really challenging, really controversial stuff. And all of these people who were following him are like, nah, that's the line, too far, the bar's too high, I'm tapping out, see ya. And he kind of turns to the 12 and he's like, you don't want to go away too, do you? And Simon Peter, his answer gets me every time. Simon Peter answered, Lord, to whom else shall we go? For you have the words of eternal life. What he's saying is, Jesus, you have access. You provide the one thing that those other paths could never give me. Access to the source of life, beyond this life, 
who fills us now and encourages us on to eternity. Now, I'm not naturally one to believe in miracles. I tend to be more naturally like suspicious of hype or false optimism, right? And I didn't grow up in a church tradition that talked very much about this. And so on my own dark days, for a long time, I found it very hard to believe that there was anything more than this. Anything more than I had seen. Anything more than I had known. Until Easter Sunday, two years ago, after several crazy years, where looking back, all I could see was a whole string of broken relationships, And looking forward, all I could see and feel and experience was a whole lot of loneliness and social anxiety. And I'm not saying that I didn't have people around me that cared, I really did. And um, they encouraged me to hope. But there was this part of me that was still a little bit suspicious. It's like, sure, that isn't false optimism? Like, you don't really know my story? Like, you don't really know what's going on here, right? And on my darkest days, it was like, oh, are they just like saying this to make themselves feel better so that they don't have to deal with my trauma anymore? (laughs) Right? I wonder if maybe I'm not the only one who's ever thought that. Um, But then, in the middle of COVID lockdown, of all places, like the first one, the one that was really traumatic and like we had no idea what was going on, um, I realized, if it is true, it changes everything. If Jesus really is who he says he is, that changes things. There's a reason to hope beyond my circumstances. There's a reason to hope beyond what I can see. Where in my mind, by all logic and rationale, one plus one equaled hopelessness, Jesus' resurrection gave me a hope, a reason to hope beyond what I could see. I had an expectation versus reality reversal. I began to believe for the very first time that maybe the truer truth, the realer reality, was not the hopelessness I'd let consume me. Maybe hope wasn't a lie. And perhaps the very fact that it was beyond me was what gave it the very power to transform me. And so, since then, I've just been left with this. If all there is, is what we can see, what hope is there? But what if there's more? And so, if, I, if there was one message that I could or had to give my life for, it would be this. Hope has a name. It is Jesus. And he is the way. Jesus is the hope for the world. Now, perhaps you're like, oh, Taylor, that's really lovely. Like, nice story, but slow down. Like, miracles, resurrections, eternal life, like, come on, really. Um, So I think in our scientific, rationalist, post-enlightenment society, the bigger controversy in this whole passage is not about the Sabbath. It's actually about the miracle. And we're, thankfully, also not the first ones to wrestle with this. Now, I'm just going to read a bit from 1 Corinthians chapter 15, which is where Paul is writing to the Corinthians. I love this chapter. Just go go home and read all of it. It's amazing. Um, Now, brothers and sisters, I want to remind you of the gospel I preached to you, 
which you received and on which you have taken your stand. By this gospel, you are saved. For what I received, I passed on to you as of first importance, that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, that he was buried, and that he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures. If there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ was raised. And if Christ has not been raised, our preaching is useless, and so is your faith. More than that, we are then found to be false witnesses about God, for we have testified about God that he raised Christ from the dead. If only for this life we have hope in Christ, we are of all people most to be pitied. Did you know that was in the Bible? (laughs) The Apostle Paul acknowledges that without the resurrection, the Christian faith is ludicrous. He doesn't even try to argue that it's some nice moral framework or good way to find meaning and purpose and fulfillment and stuff. Like, no, he cuts straight to the chase. He says, without the miracle of the resurrection, God is dead. Now faith is worth nothing. It's pretty bold. <laughs> so, did it happen? Did it happen? I don't care if you struggle to believe in miracles. I don't care if eternal life seems ludicrous to you. I can understand if you struggle to believe in God or that Jesus was the Son of God, both human and divine. Eventually, those things we receive through faith. Not blind faith, but the faith that comes from knowing and being caught up in the reality of God's story. I think we can all agree that a man dying being dead for three days, the point where people had to like bring spices and stuff because he was probably going to smell, and then rising again is impossible. It wasn't like Jesus was on life support there in the tomb. Like He was properly dead. <laughs> if that happened, it'd really be a miracle. If that happened, that guy is probably someone pretty special, and it might even be plausible to believe a few of the other crazy things that he said and did. Now, sorry to disappoint you, I'm not actually going to go through all the evidence for that right now. I don't want to take that joy away from Stefan or Mike, who preached a sermon on it a few years back. I'll leave you with that question, but I do have a few resources that I'm happy to point you to, or if you want to come and talk to one of us afterwards so we can point you in another direction. But um, instead, I'll just leave you with that question. And another question, I will ask this, what is your hope? Or perhaps, where is it? Now, you guys thought I was done. I just saw the band sneak out the back. I've got one more point. Uh, (laughs) The hope of Jesus is solid and sure. So the Bible teaches this profound and challenging truth that our lives are only as secure as our hope. I think that's something that we've been learning the hard way over these last few years of COVID and all the uncertainty that it's brought. The world makes a lot of promises, a bit like a political party on election day. If this happens, then everything will be okay. If I can just find the right person, get into the right relationship, or finally find the right group of friends, then I'll be happy. If I can just establish my own financial security and figure everything out, tick all the boxes, then we'll be sweet. 
If I can just get my health sorted out, if I can just finally find a way to sort out and stabilize my mental health, everything's gonna be better. Or perhaps if I find the right friend group to fit in, or perhaps even contort or even construct a new identity of my own in order to fit in with them, then all of a sudden I'll have that sense of acceptance and belonging and peace. Or perhaps all I, all I need to chase after is that next, that next hit, that next high, that next adventure, that next thing that's just going to make me feel better and help me get through that week. Now, these things aren't necessarily bad in and of themselves, but my question is, what kind of hope do they make? Are they a true hope or are they a false hope that's ultimately going to disappoint See, in our culture of instant gratification, a truth that's really hard for us to wrap our heads around is that every decision, everything that we put our trust and our hope in, ultimately has a shelf life. As in, what I mean is, it's gonna serve us for a little while. It's gonna make us feel great, you know, while things are good. But what about when they start to sort of get a little topsy-turvy or not work out as great? What about then? And not only that, Every decision has a shelf life and a nutritional value. You can tell I've been working at Woolworths recently. <laughs> um, and by nutritional value, what I mean is like, you know, if I eat a really high sugary diet for a little while, it'll make me feel good, but if I do that for days, weeks, months, years on end, eventually that's gonna affect my body. That's gonna affect the way that I function. That's gonna affect my sense of well-being and my sense of, eventually I'll find myself depleted and, and running on empty because I'm just not getting the nutritional value that I need. So these things, every, every decision, everything we put our hope in can get us so far. The question is, is it enough to build a life on? In contrast to this, biblical hope is not just optimism based on the odds. It's not just something that's temporarily gonna make me feel better or be a quick fix, or even a fix for a few decades before then it fades away and starts to break down. No, it is a choice to wait for God to bring about a future that's as surprising as God raising a crucified man from the dead. And not only does that impact our lives in the future, it makes a difference now as we are filled with the hope and the power and the presence and the peace of the Holy Spirit to transform our lived realities. And now I was about to invite the van to come up. <laughs> See, I think it's human nature for all of us to fall into this condition called myopia, which is short-sightedness, which is what happens when I take off my glasses. So people at the back of the room, hello. I have no idea who you are. <laughs> In the Pharisees, we see that they're placing their hope, their short-sighted, their short-term hope, in the fulfillment of the status quo. Or in the man, we see that, you know, he's in a state of utter hopelessness and despair by human terms, and would likely have given up all hope. This is all there is, all there is to live for. And I wonder how many of us find ourselves caught in that lie, thinking this is all there is, this is all I have, you know, I'm just gonna settle for that and stay stuck in the same addiction to porn or sex or destructive and abusive relationships. The same humdrum existence or lukewarm, uninspired experience of faith. The same shallow, individualistic, Instagrammable identities. Or the same frustrations, arguments, mental health struggles, burnout, the same toxic patterns of thought. Is this all there is? If all we have is what we can see, 
What hope is there? But what if there's more? Now, in a sermon about miracles, you might expect me to say that God can just click his fingers and make it all go away. And honestly, I believe he can. I believe God can heal in an instant. I believe that God can transform hearts and minds and lives, setting people on an entirely new trajectory. I believe the power of Jesus is the same today as when he healed on the Sabbath. And I believe that the same power that raised Jesus Christ from the dead is alive in those of us who believe and who are here present today. And if today you're here or you're online and what you desperately need is a miracle, we want to pray for you. And we're going to have some people up the front who are going to do that and I will be down here as well straight after. I just want to, yeah, give you the assurance to know that God is here. He is present. His Holy Spirit is with us. Among us, he promises that. And he can do signs and wonders and miracles today. But I also want to lift our eyes to the even greater miracle in our midst. Jesus didn't just come to heal and to do miracles. All of those things were just a signpost towards, a sneak peek, a preview of the greater hope, the greater redemption that has come and is to come. Through his death on the cross, Jesus inaugurated his upside down kingdom. He who was God himself made himself nothing. And through his resurrection, he declared himself king over all the powers that be. All powers and authorities over suffering, over sin, over oppression, over death and over disease for all of eternity. And this is our hope. That even in the not yet, even in the waiting, even before the miracle arrives, we have this hope as an anchor for our lives safe and secure. The realest, truest reality is the one that Jesus brings. Beyond all our expectations, regardless of our earthly circumstances, we are on a set trajectory towards hope. Nothing can shake that or take that away. And this is hope that we can taste and be transformed by in the present while remaining confident that just around the corner is the real wedding feast. Now, I don't want that to be a cop-out either, right? If you have a prayer request or a need, something I've realized, and I'm guilty of this, sometimes not hoping can actually be a defense mechanism. And so, you know, either because we feel threatened by Jesus' claim to authority on our own lives, or we're just scared that he won't come through, that he can't do it. Either way, one thing should be clear by now. Hope does not start with you and me. Hope doesn't start with us. It is beyond us. And we cannot do it on our own. Thanks so much for listening. I pray that you were able to hear from God in a fresh way today. We would love to hear from our listeners. To connect with us or to financially support the work of Encounter, please jump on our website, encounteradelaide.com.au. And if you enjoyed this podcast, don't forget to jump onto iTunes, Spotify, or your podcast provider and give us a rating and review. 
or share this message on your social media accounts and tag us at Encounter Adelaide. God bless. Have an amazing week.